Amen. All right, Alan. All right, our text this morning is in uh, Romans chapter 9, and we'll be starting at verse 1. So if you could turn with me there. Romans 9, 1 through 13. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoptions as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For, through the twin, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Thank you, Alan. Well, here we go. We have been trying for two weeks. I've been trying to set the stage as we prepare for the doctrine of predestination, and we're there. Um, Before we get into it, I suppose, I need to preface this conversation with just uh, this reality. You know, when we get into the doctrines of predestination, I know there are questions, So what I'd like to do is on August 10th, for those of you who want questions answered, at 6 p.m. that Sunday night, I'll have a short short discussion on predestination and then open it up to address any concerns one might have, not concerns, but questions as we walk through this um, together. So often, and I even heard it here recently, that some have come to Romans 9 and one admitted that they just jumped over it. Um, It's a passage that's loaded, which is often neglected. And I think that is such a disadvantage. I have already been increasingly just thankful for the things that Paul has addressed here in this text. And so for the next three weeks, he is going to layer upon us these truths, pressing the sovereignty of God in a place that ought to cause us to understand the mercy of God. And what is interesting about Paul here in this section, he's not mincing words. He's not beating around the bush. He is going straight to the point. The election of God, the call of God, stresses emphatically the mercy of God. Why? Salvation does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The question I have as we go through this text, 
And we ought to answer ourselves as to whom does salvation belong? Who gives it? Who has the rights to it? The challenge that we have found throughout all human history is somehow humanity has said we own the rights to salvation. And on that basis, you have seen historically all generations, all societies develop their own standards of acquiring right favor before God. As Peter, when he went before the Jews, he said, There is salvation in no one else, though there is only one other, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And among all peoples, all cultures, who understand or understood the uniqueness of God, what Paul is going to be grappling with, why is it, how is it, the Jews of all people who understood more than anyone who God was and who He is, why is it that this group of people did not respond to Jesus and His gospel? This is the challenges he faces. And if you let it sink in, you will find hope as a parent. How is it that Jews who were the closest to receive the promise, so many of them then and even now, do not respond to the gospel? You can see it in Paul's letter how convicted he is by this truth and his love for the Jewish people which he identifies himself with. Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He lives in a people that would be. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. To the Jew first. And also the Greek. To the Jew first. Why is it that so many Jews would not and still do not respond to the gospel? In fact, if we were to read the book of Acts, we see amongst these people a hostility towards this gospel. Peter, after his second sermon, it only took one sermon, after his second sermon, do you remember how the Jewish leaders responded? In Acts chapter 4, verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. The Jewish people, among all people who ought to recognize their Messiah, were so hostile to it. Just a chapter later, in Acts chapter 5, when the the gospel was being received by some, in verse 17 and 18, you continue to see this hostility. The high priest rose up, in verse 17, along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. He laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. Things get increasingly worse and hostile in chapter 8. As Stephen, a Jew, proclaims the gospel and criticizes his own Jewish community for having a hard heart towards God. And at the end of it, he accuses them of their unwillingness to repent and their response in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And on that day, there was a great persecution that began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, Samaria, except the apostles who remained. Why is it so many Jews refused and still refuse the gospel today? 
This is the question that which Paul has to answer. And if you ever think or ever had the time to think about it like I have, the Jews had the great advantage, I'll allude to it here in verse 4 of chapter 9, Israelites, God was gracious to the Israelite that he gave them the right to be adopted as sons. He, they allowed, God allowed himself to see to the Israelites his glory. He gave them covenants. He gave them the law. He gave them the temple practices. And he gave them promises. And these, to these people, yet they themselves refused to respond to the gospel. Why is it that the Jews, who had the greatest advantage, did not respond? If you ever think about it, in a society where you're like, like even my own family, how is it, and you might think of other families as well, how is it that you can have people grow up in a God-fearing home in which you have parents that pour themselves out to allow their children to know the grace of God, to know the mercy of God, to set every foundation possible so that they might enjoy God, that when they come to an adult they run as far as they possibly can from God. How does this happen? The challenge is is that Paul is answering bluntly a question that many have asked. Specifically, Paul is asking that to the Jewish community, how is it possible with all the things which God graciously gave to them that so many yet not respond? And he is going to make itself Very evident, he doesn't beat around the bush why this reality exists. The Jew had more than a family, like I did, that feared God. They grew up, Jewish community as a whole, grew up in a God-fearing community and a nation who feared Yahweh. Yet still, many refused to worship and receive the promised Christ. So I think what Paul is doing here is loaded. It's theologically deep in that Paul is in some way convicted that those who receive this letter are able to bear with its depths of theology. And I assume the same for ourselves, that we would receive it. That he's going to stress three things and with the fourth conclude whom does salvation belong to. And he's going to remind the reader of this first truth. Salvation is not determined by an advantage. You're going to see this. We alluded to one, verses 1 through 5 last week and that we looked at the attitude one must have as they discussed the issues of predestination. But, when he, but one thing we did not emphasize is the significance that Paul makes here. So often... Just because we understand that God has been gracious to a people or even to you, some might make the assumption that that grace was sufficient for their own salvation. And Paul is going to say, just because you had an advantage doesn't mean that you're the recipient of the promise. Look what he does here. He stresses the problem that they have in verse 3. I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Why? Because my brethren have not responded to the one whom was promised by the temple practiced, by the law, by the glory which was revealed to them. And yet they're separated because of their lack of response to Christ. I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
It was his own people in verse 5 that he continues. Whose are the fathers and who from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Paul, looking at the Jewish community, he comes to this conclusion. Just because my people had the greatest advantage on the face of the world, that advantage did not mean they would necessarily respond to the gospel. In fact, rather, what the Jewish community did at large is they used the advantage they had as means to puff up themselves above everyone else. Kind of get a hint of it already in the Romans. If you go back to Romans chapter 1, he alludes to this. Romans 2, verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, and reply, rely upon the law and boast in God, there was this attitude that the Jews, because of the basis of the advantage that they had, that God so much would be then that just allowed them to get in because He has been gracious to them. In fact, you can see hints of it as well. That even in the Old Testament, they recognized the unique position that they had before the rest of creation and all the other nations. Psalms 147, 19-20, he said, the psalmist, He declares his words to Jacob, God does, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He's been a God who's been gracious to the Jewish people. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. The Jewish community recognized the advantage that they had. Yet in light of that advantage, they failed in one category to receive the promise of the one who came through the law. Jesus himself, if you remember, when Jesus was sitting with the woman at the, the well, the Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman says, where should we worship? Should we worship on this hill or we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus himself acknowledges there is a unique position that Jews have over all other nations and all other peoples. And he acknowledges it with this statement. You worship, John 4.22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. The Jews had an advantage. They knew who God was. His righteousness and His holiness and His unique position over all creation. But with that advantage, Paul is going to say they are yet still separated from Christ. Let me give you an example of this so you might see it and understand it. It is a rare thing to recognize that in the advantage that we just assume that somehow we're just right with God. Yet there's this sometimes this unwillingness to respond to God in light of the grace that's been given. Matthew 2 at Jesus' birth, verses 1 through 6. The scenario is set up like this. In Jerusalem, there's Herod the Great. And Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. If you go to modern-day Jerusalem today, do you know how long it takes to walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Two hours. However, at the time of Jesus' birth, and as he grew in age, there stood a star over Bethlehem. And I want you to recognize in this midst of this situation, the religious leaders knew where because they had the advantage of the law and the scriptures, they knew where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem. And when they saw the star with the incredible advantage that they had, did they respond? No. 
but rather Matthew puts before the reader a group of people who are willing to respond and take a great distance to go and worship the one who is born king. I want you to notice the contrast here. Because just because you had an advantage doesn't mean you're going to respond to the salvation given. Matthew 2, 1, 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Magi, Magi, Gentiles, right? So conflict already. Jews who have the law, Gentiles who are far from God, who do not have law, do not have the temple, no advantage. All, what do they have? In contrast, a star. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Messiah, where the Messiah was to be born? Look at verse 5. They said to him, there's no, Matthew's doing something here. There's no like hint of the Pharisees going back and saying, let's go look at our Bibles and go see where the Messiah ought to be born. They, they know the scriptures. So when Herod asked, where is the Messiah to be born? They say, because they know they have the advantage in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. They quote it. Isn't that fascinating? You can have the advantage, but you'd be unwilling to respond to the grace that's been given to you. It's terrifying. Plead with you children, young adults, just because you've been given the advantage, don't assume your lack of response to it. Pharisees were guilty of it. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, Land of Judah, and are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The religious leaders knew where the king, the Messiah, was to be born. The star hung above the place of his birth. They possessed the oracles of God in which they were entrusted and yet were unwilling to do it. And in light of even Gentile magis arriving at the place to worship their king and testify or verifying this reality, they still don't go. However, who does? Gentiles. Matthew 2, 11. After coming into the house, they saw the magi going to worship this born king. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You, have been, you can be given advantage and yet still fail to respond to its promises. How is that possible? Now, we could go air here. Because we'll see here in a few points that merit doesn't get you salvation either. We could say to the manager, I sure, you traveled for 12 months. Definitely you get in. Now, it doesn't matter about closeness or farness. What Paul is going to allude here is you are saved by the mercy of God. And so we must tempt ourselves from going and say, well, but just because they've made it a long journey, they're in. No, that's not what Paul will teach. Paul is going to teach something else. But nonetheless, he teaches us here as we look at Matthew, there is 
There is this reality. Just because you have the advantage doesn't mean that you'll respond to its promises. And the Jews were known for doing this, thinking that just because they have received this overwhelming grace of God, that they are now something that they're going just to naturally inherit its reward. So one, salvation is not determined by its advantage that you might have. Two, Paul is going to stress to the Jewish community, just because you have natural descent, salvation is not determined by natural descent. You're not saved, Jews, on the basis of your father, your mother, your uncle's faith. This is really important because this tradition still applies. My mom prays for me. And because she prays for me, I hope that covers me. Paul is going to say to the Jewish community who trusted in their father, Abraham. Abraham was unlike any other patriarch that they had in their tradition. He was the one who was given a promise. And through Abraham, the promise was that God will, through him, be a blessing to the nations. And Israel assumed as the result of Abraham's faith therein. You can see this argument that Paul is going to say, just because you're a natural descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're in. Why? Because Ishmael, who was a natural descendant of Abraham, is not in. You can read this. This It's a straightforward argument. Verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendant from Israel. Just because you're a descendant of Israel doesn't mean you're an Israelite. The same argument, we understand this argument in ourselves. Just because you grew up in a Christian family doesn't mean you're a Christian. Right? There's, there's this disconnect. Just because you're a part of a community doesn't mean you're necessarily a part of that community or bought into that community. Just because you walk through McDonald's doesn't mean you're an employee of McDonald's. Right? There's, there's this idea that what somehow we assume, like all other nations, just because there was somebody who was faithful before us, God's favor would then be found upon us. Paul's going to say, no, that's not true. Not all, Israel's are, who are, not all Israel who are descended from Israel are Israel. Verse 7, but let me be specific. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendant, descendants will be named. Look at verse 8. That is, it is not the child, children of the flesh who are children of God, because if it was by the flesh, Ishmael would be of the promise. But the, chi- the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. One more verse and I'll clarify. Verse 9. For this is the word of a promise. The one to whom the promise was given. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Abraham received the promise. Through you all nations will be blessed. The problem was, Sarah was barren. She was getting old. And at the age of 90, things don't work anymore. Sarah, knowing this in Genesis 16, 2, says this, and she admits her womb is closed, but not just closed because of age. It's closed because God closed it. She says, so if Sarah said to Abraham, we received this promise, somehow we got to fulfill it. Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps we'll have attained children through her. And so through the wisdom of man, Abraham and Sarah thought, well, we can help God with this promise thing. And go through, the promise can go through Hagar. 
and which produced Ishmael. I want you to notice, God said, no. I choose to whom where my promises go. And where did he choose? He chose to whom the promise was be given to one who did not exist. And at that time he said, no, next year when I come back, there will be a child in her womb whom I placed. And it's him I choose. And so Israel, natural descent doesn't mean you're in. Just because you're of Israel doesn't mean you're an Israelite. You must be a specific type of descendant. Not descendant of biology, but descendant of faith. A child of God is one who trusts in the promises of God that have been given to them. And so one, salvation is not determined by advantage, which Abraham had and all the Israelites had, but also salvation is not determined by descent. Just so that you see it again as after the completion I've alluded to with Ishmael and Isaac. That is, verse 8, it is not the child of the flesh, Ishmael, who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of the promise in the midst in which Isaac never existed. Now I'll come back a year later and here's more of the promise will be given. At this time I will come and Sarah will shall have a son. So Paul is doing something. Why is it that Jews aren't responding to the gospel? He's allowing us to understand this layering, this gift of the church. It's not by advantage that you're saved. It's not by natural descent that you're saved. And three, and he's already stressed this, but he feels like he has to stress it again. You're not saved. Salvation is not determined by merit. You're not saved by your works. And he has spent a lot of time, and we've looked at this, but I want you to know Notice the uniqueness of this specific example and what she says in verses 10 through 13. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come. Oh, this is verse 9, excuse me, as Sarah shall have a son. In verse 10, and not only this, we call this doubling down. Right? So you use an example, and the reader's going to go, What? And not only this, double down. And he's going to double down with this reality. But there was Rebecca, who was when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. In the previous example, you had one man, two women. You had gone, forsaken Ishmael, and receiving Isaac, and bestowing upon Isaac the promises. This one is upping the ante, so to speak. We have one man, one woman, two twins. Twins. I said this two weeks ago. Yeah, twins means two, but twins meaning in the womb, one man, one woman, identical. And Paul's point here is going to stress to whom does salvation belong? You can't get a better example than this. Twins has done nothing in order to earn the merit of God. They're of natural descent. They have the advantage. Whom will God bestow the blessing upon? Look at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purposes according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. To whom did God give the promise of blessing to? Jacob. To, to a, 
to twins, he chooses not on the basis of works to whom he receives the promise, but on the basis of his mercy. This is what Paul is trying to help the church to realize. You don't bring any advantage before God that brought him to say, well, I'll choose them because somehow they benefit me. They didn't choose, God did not choose you because you're of the right family. God did not choose you because of your merit before him. God chose you because of his mercy. And in this illustration, you see Paul pressing this sovereign right to choose whomever he wants to bestow his mercy upon twins. So that you might understand what has been given to you. Why is it that the Jews are not responding to the gospel? This is what Paul is arguing. Look at verse 11 again. I would reread it. If you have an issue with the doctrine of predestination, you have to know verse 11. Because Paul is pressing and stressing it. But there is a reason why he stresses this point. For though the twins were not yet born, had done nothing any good, anything good or bad, so that the purposes of God, according to his choice, would stand, not because of his works, but because of him who calls. To whom does salvation belong? To whom gives it? The point is, is, the challenge is, is that when we read passages like this, we say that's not fair. Look at verse 12. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, just as is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. God chooses to whom he gets to apply his mercy. This is what the scriptures teach. The point being is, is that when God bestows his mercy upon one, it is his love towards one. I know the heaviness in which you see in verse 13, Esau I hated Boy, that ruins a lot of songs we hear on the radio. But before we... Let's put this, this word hate in the right category. We could put hate in the category of vindictiveness. Desiring to see one crushed. That's not the context in which Paul, I think, is using it. He's using it in the context in which Jesus himself used it. You're familiar with it, I think. You see it in Matthew 6, 24. He says... No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And God who calls and bestows his mercy on one, that comparison of love towards one he is merciful is, is a love which is in, unequally comparable to just the common grace that humanity gets. And that it is disdained in the sense of this one is loved in light of this other who is not. It's not a just one of being despised, but rather, I think, of one emphasizing the one he has been merciful to. Another one, just to verify this, my understanding of it, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, we know the law, we know the scriptures. The scriptures indeed teach us that we ought to respect our parents. This is a standard which Jesus even himself practiced. But the love that we ought to have for God should be primary, that everything becomes secondary. That's the point. When God bestows his mercy upon one, 
That is the object of his mercy, and everything else is secondary. Jacob, I have loved. He has become primary. To whom does salvation belong? To whom does the mercy of God belong? God. And which Jacob, a twin, who had done nothing right or wrong, acquired this mercy, not on his advantage, not on the basis of his merit, not on the basis of his descent, but by on the basis of his, but on the basis of God's mercy towards him. So what Paul has done in just a matter of verses, he's solidified this reality. Salvation is not determined by advantage. Salvation is not determined by natural descent. Salvation is not determined by merit. Then then what is salvation benefit? What is it based on? What is it based on? There's nothing left. And that's the point. Because Paul wants to stress this reality that the church ought to know and enjoy the means by which you have a right relationship with God is because God has been merciful to you. And this mercy to you does not mean you go take that mercy and hold it above everybody else who doesn't have that mercy. That's not how Paul acts. That's not how Jesus acts. That's not how any of those who are in Christ act. That's, that's not the practice. The, rather, the practice of this doctrine ought to move the believer to be humbled. To realize that unless it was by God's grace, I would be destined for eternity from Him. And rightfully so. And Paul wants to strengthen the church in this reality. If God has been gracious to you, if you responded to his truth, even if you were far off, a Gentile, God has been merciful to you. This is his point. You've got to see it. I know it wasn't in the scripture reading this morning, but you'll see this as we go in next week. Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says, God, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, the whole point. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. How are you saved? By the mercy of God. Because if God didn't show himself to you, if God did not call you, if God did not woo you, you would not respond. Why is it that the Jews, and we'll see this in chapter 11, why are they not responding? Because God is opening the door for the Gentiles. He's being merciful to them. What would draw a magi to be compelled by a star in the sky to assume that there's a king at the, at the base of it, the mercy of God that would stir the heart to do such things. The proud Pharisees and religious leaders who trusted in Abraham and Moses, they can't make a two-hour walk because their hearts are set on the advantage, their natural descent, their merit for their salvation. John the Baptist, he was so frustrated with this reality. Matthew 3, 5 through 9, the one who proclaimed the arrival of the Messiah. 
Jerusalem was going out to him, John the Baptist, all of Judea and all the districts around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. And as they confessed their sins, all these people were there. But when he saw the, many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to be baptized, he said to them, wait, just hold on before you see how angry he is. Matthew chapter 3 comes after Matthew chapter 2. Okay. We, do doc, we, we do discipleship here. Matthew chapter 2, they can't make a two-hour walk. You know how long it takes to get from Jerusalem to the Jordan River? They didn't have a car. 15 hours. Why are they there? Because everyone's there. People are there. They're worried that they're losing their traditions and their values. They can't stand it. They go out to see this one who's gaining all this reputation because they love their positions and the seats that they enjoy at the temple. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you come out and make this trip. You can't go see the one born king. You brood of vipers. Who warned you from, to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Trust in your natural descent. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. God, if he so desires, can look at a rock and say, here is my mercy granted for you. You are now the descendant of Abraham. And that is, in fact, what he did with Isaac. He called into existence that which did not exist to be the one, the son of the promise. Because God is merciful to do and apply his mercy where he deems best. For, as Paul says, for his purposes. In fact, as Jesus' ministry continues, he makes light of this reality as the Jews continue to press against him. Matthew 8, 11 through 12, I say to you that many will come, many, from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, who had the advantage of the natural descent, the closest to God, will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the point? You can trust in your advantage. You can trust in your family. You can trust in your work and miss Christ. So then what is it that saves a person? The mercy of God that's been revealed to you. The call of God who calls you according to his purposes. And it's in that moment when you respond to Christ, making him Lord of your life, you are now the descendant of Abraham. Not by natural descent, by, but by faith. And so I come to understand, my understanding of predestination is that if you can't see predestination without the word mercy, you don't get it. Because that's what Paul is trying to point down and stress for this church. Romans 9, 14, 16. I must read it again. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? No, because it's His mercy. It's His salvation. May it never be. For He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's His to give 
And to whom he desires to give it, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then the grace, the salvation, the joy that you see in Christ was not dependent upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. But isn't this how it's always been? This is how it's always been. If you have a problem with this theology of Paul, next week I'll have a harder time. But this reality is always how it's been. Remember Israel, when they got out of Egypt, finally after 10 plagues, they sit at the Red Sea. And God's not going to let the Israelites have their salvation by their own merit, own works. So the Moses, when he sees the armies of Pharaoh and he sees the Red Sea, he says these words. Just listen to them. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Salvation, as the Israelites came to understand, salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's the Lord who grants it. And when He grants it, those who receive it have experienced the mercy of God. Church in Rome, you have experienced the mercy of God, the grace of God. Now recognize what God has done for you. Reliance, the grace of God, the gospel found you in tri-cities. Do you really think you got it by your own natural descent? I know some of you have had families that were far from God. Did the mercy of God find you yet still? Yes. Some of you had the benefit that I had who were raised up in God-fearing home. Did the grace of God find me there? Yes. Why? Because God was merciful to us. This is not just a Roman letter of Romans truth. This is a letter that which Paul and the apostles affirmed. Let me give you three. And I hope and as I give you these three, you'll come to the table recognizing the mercy that God has given to you. It's, it's tempting for me to want to defend this reality. I just want you to sit in it. I can hear the, the voices like, well, what about everybody else? No, the point is that Paul is trying to stress this is what's been given to you. Would you enjoy it? Paul doesn't take this theology and say, well, I don't need to tell the gospel. No, he goes out and he proclaims the gospel to the point of death. Because he knows that he's being sent to Rome, whether it be to Jerusalem. If God calls a people, all he has to do is speak. And the mercy of God, when it's heard, they respond. Praise the God that God is still raising up missionaries to go out into the world. What should that encourage the church with? God still being patient and merciful to the world. Churches still exist in which the community of God are being stirred with their hearts together, knowing the mercy of God, knowing that the places in which we live are not random. As we proclaim the gospel with our mouths, whether it be to a child or whether it be a co-worker or a boss. God's call is there. They'll respond. It ought to give us the greatest confidence and humility. 
knowing that not my presentation saves them. You ever get scared about how you present the gospel? If you mess it up, somehow you're going to ruin it for them. How terrifying it is for a Christian to think that the way that I live might determine somebody's response to the gospel. Yeah, it is true. We ought to be concerned about the way that we live. But let us not assume that our way of living somehow trumps the sovereignty of God in salvation. We are saved because of the mercy and sovereign work of God. And so we respond in the light of that mercy for what God has done for us, remaining humble. I am only who I am by the grace of God and mercy of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Consider your calling, brethren. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, nor many noble. I always like this passage because Paul's like, remember you guys are like this tall in the world's eyes. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I consider the doctrines of predestination, what is Paul trying to teach us? Don't claim an ounce of his salvation. It's his and trust in it. For the natural man trusts in his natural selection, his advantages and his works. The one who hopes in Christ, he trusts in nothing but the mercy of God and boasts in his work. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one, no one may boast. 2 Timothy 1.9 like, These are helpful truths as parents. Who saves your child? Because they're going to grow up and they're going to be an adult. And you could do everything right. And praise God that you do. And you're faithful to those things. But as parents, we're not foolish. We trust in the sovereignty of God. We pray with God. You're the merciful one. You're the one that changes the hearts of men. And so we trust not our own merits or our own works or our own advantage and own resources. We trust in the one who redeems. Change my heart. Change my children's hearts. Change the hearts around me. For it's you and you alone that can do these things. How freeing those things can be. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us? Because salvation belongs to him. And called us because he's the one who can be merciful. Called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes. And grace which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. One more verse. I said that was the last one. Just came to me. Matthew 16. You won't have this. When Peter comes, when Jesus takes him the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. 
He says, who do the people say that I am? Some say that you're John the Baptist and others Elijah. Others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? I want you to notice the mercy of God. Peter does not arrive at this understanding by his own merits or advantage or descent. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, or Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he has been merciful, paraphrase, he has now been merciful to you to realize these things. Romans 9, 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the God who, has merci- who is merciful. The table is before us. We're going to receive it, and we're going to consider who we are. We are saved by the grace. We have responded to the grace of God because of his mercy. We are not a people who boast in our merits, but the boasting results in what Christ has done for us. Receive that. Wait and pray and thank the Lord what he has done for you in his mercy. And we will take it and conclude our service together as we participate in taking it together. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this understanding of the doctrine 